Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number nine of Esoteric Artifacts. Um, back with Glenn, recording with our new setup. This is the first time we've done this remotely, so uh, bear with us. Uh, see if it works out. Um, we are going to be able to display stuff on screen, which is nice. We've got our cameras over here off to the side, and um, we'll be able to pull up articles and talk about some of the subjects that we want to uh, discuss today. But yeah, Glenn. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to be back. Um, the move was uh, quite eventful. Um, it's really hard to pick up your life and move it somewhere else. But uh, all things are going well, so I'm excited to be back and uh, dive back into things with you. Absolutely. A little bit easier when it's for your dream job, right? Yeah, you know, life is going well. I'm, uh, I'm living large, so... Uh, <laughs> It's uh, it's nice to be able to just relax and talk about these things and dive into them a bit deeper than you get to just, you know, looking over them yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that we're able to record again because, um, I mean, we had some really interesting episodes on healthcare and on some of the financial structures surrounding that, um, the last two episodes that I did with uh, Dr. Rivera. But we are excited to be talking about economics, um, you know, international policy, and some of the major updates that have happened um, in like the last two months since we've had a chance to talk about some of this stuff, um, especially some of the Russia stuff, which we have not discussed for several months. Um, there's been some major updates on that. But first, I definitely want to talk about um, this key piece of legislation, which passed recently, um, probably the biggest bill that has been passed um, since the Biden administration began, um, the Inflation Re Reduction Act of 2022. Um, this is a pretty major bill in that, uh, I mean, <laughs> interesting name, uh, calling it the Inflation Reduction Act, but it is, uh, it is a large spending bill. It um, has, you know, several hundred billion in uh, spending, um, goes towards a number of categories, heavily towards climate investment. Um, and there's uh, also some new taxes in it and plenty of funding for the IRS, of course, our favorite people. Of course. And I mean, it's, as with all things the government does, the naming is particularly interesting with this piece of legislation. The Inflation Reduction Act. So the number one cause of inflation is the government spending money. Typically, so, yes. So in order to reduce inflation, the government will now spend money. And instead of actually spending money towards the economy, most of it is going to go to climate change. Is that correct? That is correct. The lion's share of the spending is going towards climate change. And, you know, there are elements of those, the climate spending that I, you know, I personally support. I just question whether now is an ideal time to do that. And in the eyes of the U.S. government, the answer is probably yes, of course, because this inflationary environment allows them to get away with certain spending and just kind of sweep it under the rug, so to speak. Um, but, well, yeah. I would totally agree with that. And I would say that's kind of like my biggest gripe with this piece of legislation in particular, but just with the general political environment right now of, you know, kind of sweep it under the rug, the Inflation Reduction Act, we'll call it, because that's what's on the front of everyone's mind. But that's not the actual agenda being pushed forward here. Like, I mean, most of this money is earmarked for climate change. And, and tax enforcement, which is, you know, uh, a little right, bit absurd. Uh, 
there's a huge amount of money that's earmarked for uh, IRS uh, positions, right? Uh, I, this is the largest expansion of the IRS that has ever occurred in the history of the IRS. This is an effective doubling of the staffing of the IRS. Um, but- right, but this is a ref- inflation reduction bill while we're currently hiring more people for the IRS than we've ever done before. Like, uh, there's some misdirection and some governmentalness happening here. Absolutely. And I mean, you have obviously a game being played where in which the Federal Reserve is trying to pass off blame onto external factors or factors outside of their control. The Biden administration is trying to pass off blame onto corporate greed, largely, which there, there is some truth to all of these sides' arguments. There is, yes, there is some corporate greed that's going on in profiteering at the expense of the current inflationary environment. Um, obviously, we just saw, you know, Q, uh, Q3 earnings, or, or sorry, Q2 earnings uh, is, is still coming out right now. And um, we've seen some, still some pretty high uh, corporate earnings in the stock market. And um, that's why, you know, right now we have the S&P 500 has, this is the strongest recovery that we've seen in the S&P 500 um, well, and I'm actually, in the last couple I'm of years. Um, and that's spot on. And I'm happy you actually brought this chart up because this is a perfect example of just the, you know, volatility and essentially insanity that's been happening these past couple of weeks and essentially about a month or so with these uh, quarter uh, Q2 earnings reports that are coming in in that like most of these earning reports are still positive. They aren't actually feeling the effects of this past month, month and a half, at least, of inflation. Largely, yes. And, you you know, if you look at, like, the banking sector, uh, institutional investment firms, they they did beat earnings, but most of them just barely beat earnings expectations. And that's, I think, pretty significant. I mean, even if you look at, like, you know, Pfizer, um, if even within pharmaceutical, within biotech, um, you have um, here AbbVie right here they um like all of them beat earnings but you can see um i I don't have that part of it pulled up on my screen but you can see that they they just barely beat earnings and um a lot of that is due still to funding that they have uh government subsidization as well as part of these pandemic recovery bills and just the general uh spending bills that we've had in the last couple of years but just going back to the cnbc article um that i had pulled up on the inflation reduction act of 2022 um, like we see here, $369 billion in climate spending and energy policy. Uh, this, According to this article, I don't know, they're not really citing where this uh, assessment came from, but it's projected to slash the country's carbon emissions by roughly 40% by 2030. I find that really, really hard to believe. Uh, in fact, I would say that's virtually impossible. That's a straight up lie. I mean, I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. I'm an engineer. There's no way. You forty percent of the energy, like there's just no way. That's yeah, an insane I've, amount of energy. I mean, the only way you could do that is if you were to outsource enough of our stuff that you were offloading those carbon emissions to another country rather than us, uh, and you'd well, have to. Yeah. The bigger problem is when you're talking about energy. In order to outsource it, it costs you energy to outsource it and to bring it back. It sure does. So, like, the idea of us getting energy from Russia or Saudi Arabia in and of itself is an insane idea because it will take half the energy we would use just to get it to us. Like, never yeah. mind the energy that we actually need. 
I think people often underestimate the consequences of just the detailed logistics like this. This is one of the reasons why um, oftentimes the United States military will abandon certain assets in certain places because of how absurd the cost would be to transport that back to the United States, recommission that equipment. Oftentimes, we'll either sell it or you know leave it wherever that asset was deployed for that reason. And, you know, as critical as we can be about the um, current administration having left like something like a hundred billion dollars in arms behind that effectively became the property of the Taliban in Afghanistan. Now, um, you know, this is something we see. And I'm glad that you uh, brought that up because regarding energy prices, this is a big reason why Europe is in its current energy crisis. Um, because Germany, um, a little over a decade ago, kind of set out to cut back pretty much all of their coal production, which coal was a little bit less than 50% of the German energy demand at that time. And Germany is a large consumer of energy. They're the largest consumer of energy in Europe. And they had promised their population uh, under the, you know, under the merits of, uh, for climate change prevention, that they would scale back all of their coal production and that they would eliminate, phase out all their nuclear as well. This is what made them so heavily reliant on Russian natural gas, which is, you know, to an extent what has allowed Russia to uh, finance the war that they're currently engaged with, uh, engaged in with Ukraine. Yeah. And I mean, in large part, I mean, Germany is a perfect example of the leverage that Russia just has at the world at large right now and just how things have changed over time in the world to where we have these policies. I mean, the United States and we were just talking about this with the Inflation Reduction Act and the amount of money earmarked for climate change and energy policies, the same similar uh, legislation has been happening in Europe, particularly in Germany, like you're mentioning, where they've pushed to natural gas instead of, you know, these traditional fossil fuels like oil mm -hmm. and like these kinds of social shifts in the West are almost lending strength to what's happening in the East. And what I'm obviously referring to there is Russia and China in particular. But our reliance or rather insistence on restricting our energy policies and Germany as a manufacturing and engineering economy is in a similar boat as the United States, though they can't produce their own energy as well. So they're even more at the mercy of Russia's own pricing and, you know, availability. But then you couple that with the social policies and now they can't use oil. Now natural gas is the only option. Well, now you can't even go to the Middle East or other parts of the world. It literally has to be Russia because they're the only significant natural gas supporter that can get it to you. Well, and, and I so think well, I think we've talked about this off camera before. I don't know that we've ever talked about it on the show, but that was uh, you know, a large part of why the Syrian civil war and Western involvement in it was because Assad was the sole actor standing in the way of a Saudi Qatar pipeline, which Qatar has, you know, the largest uh, proven natural gas reserves, uh, I believe greater than Russia even, um, if, if, if not, they're second only to Russia. And um, they had interest in building a pipeline. However, Syria stands in the way of building a pipeline um, and this was, you know, uh, stuff that occurred over a decade ago. So the Germans eventually cut their losses on the hopes that Assad would be, 
over, you know, overturned his, his, his regime would be overturned and, um, that he would lose the civil war and a, uh, more friendly, uh, leader to Europe would, uh, be put in place and they, they cut their losses and that's why they started building the Nord Stream too. Well, yeah, I mean, and I feel like that's a perfect example or the most recent example, I should say of, you know, the recent history of that region in that this is why the Middle East in particular, but also other regions around the world are laid out politically the way that they are is because they've been fought over in, you know, these different demographics for different reasons over such a long period of time. And we're just seeing, I feel like the latest results of that, like finish playing out, I would say. Yeah. It is interesting to see what's going on in the middle East because I mean, and this is kind of deviating a little bit from what we were talking about, but, um, we have seen an interest in several of the wealthy Gulf states that were wealthy because of energy, oil, crude oil in particular. We have seen an interest in them diversifying their economies, largely in real estate and tourism and gambling, even, you know, some of those sectors. Um, and like Saudi Arabia, you know, is like really uh, under MBS is pushing to, in certain ways, liberalize, I would say, and try to become friendlier for uh, foreign investors. And they, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund has invested heavily into U.S. tech companies, right? They've invested into, I believe, uh, heavily in Lucid Motors and, you know, in EVs and biotech and all of these uh, sectors. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, I feel like that kind of typifies and I guess leads a nice segue back into, like, that's kind of what we've been witnessing here with the most recent energy fluctuations with the whole ukraine russia situation is like this weird conflict between what's going on and these social pressures that are also you know pushing ebbing and flowing i would say and settling out where they may where you know in these more middle eastern markets right now we're seeing this sort of you know, more liberty rising, I would say, in, in an economic sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because they have to, because they can't rely just on the energy to finance uh, the, the countries. Um, so well, many sectors. The, energy, the yeah. energy is almost done too well for too long that now they've seen the benefits and, you know, what other countries are doing that their citizens want part of kind of a situation mm -hmm. that I feel like they have to diversify more. Well, yeah. And you have a few pi countries that were pioneers in that area. You, you, people look to the Emirates and they're like, well, you know, the Emirates look like they're doing pretty well, despite the fact that their economies are not wholly reliant on energy any longer. Uh, you know, Abu Dhabi and uh, uh, Dubai in particular. But I yeah, want... I Dubai, I mean, Dubai especially has changed dramatically over the last 10 years, let alone the last 20 or 30 years. It's completely unrecognizable. And so that level of change within their own culture, let alone that exposure to the world, just changes that dynamic so quickly. Yeah, and they experienced a real estate market bubble crash uh, just shortly after the United States did in the, during the Great Financial Collapse. I think it was 2010, 2011, that Dubai experienced their major collapse. And uh, still, I mean, they were bailed out by Abu Dhabi, but still 
they have recovered and they've in fact come back stronger uh, in a certain sense because some of those outlandish projects that perhaps shouldn't have been funded and were you know being sold to investors before they were even before they'd even broken ground that's not happening anymore um though funny enough this is something that we wanted to talk about with china today is uh the the state of the chinese real estate market and that's there's a lot of parallels actually to china's current real estate market uh versus what how dubai's was operating just prior to uh their uh bubble collapse yeah and i mean just uh leading into the china discussion if for those who aren't up to speed china has been having a um quite an epic real estate collapse i would say uh several real estate developers have had a myriad of financial issues and um china continues to cut rates and uh uh, how would you describe it? Flirt with lockdowns in order to deal with their current financial situation? Well, what's interesting is that regulators are not really able to tackle the problem at the source, which is the out-of-control developers, right? They try to send a message with Evergrande the several months ago. I think a lot of people may have heard about Evergrande and the fact that the Chinese government was essentially allowing Evergrande to fail rather than bailing them out and forcing them to deal with the situation on their own. And they were monitoring the situation closely to you know, prevent a collapse of their broader market. But uh, that sign does not appear to have been taken properly by, especially by some of these smaller real estate firms, um, have continued to not you know, fail to deliver on projects. Um, so it's become common practice in the Chinese real estate market for people to start putting down payments on property that on properties that will not break ground for like three to five years. Imagine the idea of, you know, you taking out a mortgage and starting to pay on it for several years before ground has even been broken on that. That's how the Chinese market has been for several years now in certain parts of the country. And some of those uh, companies have ended up just going bankrupt and not being able to build at all. Well, and like you expand that to their overall market from an individual investor standpoint, and like that's how you invest your money, particularly in China, is in real estate. But even in the United States, real estate is a really good investment, broadly speaking. And like when you look at the Chinese market, there are a lot more restrictions on investing in virtually anything else. So when it comes to the real estate market, you already have an influx of the average individual's capital, as well as these massive firms like Evergrande. And like as soon as this bubble starts bursting, there's not really any stopping it anymore. And so you've been paying four years before they've even broken ground on a unit that may or may not ever actually be able to hold tenants. I mean, we've been seeing reports of this here and there in, you know, the fringes, I would say, of the media for several years now about, like, these ghost cities in China. And, like, these apartments that were never meant to hold people in them at all. Like, they don't have electricity or running water. And, I mean... It's unclear how many of these are actually genuinely true, but at the same time, it highlights the broader issue of the vast majority of investments in China have no idea what they're investing in. 
because like you're saying they haven't even broke ground on the property let alone actually implemented any utilities or necessities for it to be a viable product yeah china has been um to in many degrees a, a sort of black box of information uh for us here in the west uh, china and russia both kind of share this similarity and i think i've spoken about this before but we have a hard time knowing what information we can trust that is coming out of China. Um, even, you know, I, I work very closely with several businesses that operate directly in China. And still, I have to be hesitant about what information I take at face value on what's going on in China. And this chart I've got pulled up here, if you're watching on YouTube, is um, this is the US dollar to Chinese yuan uh, conversion. And we can see that uh, this each one of these uh, bars represents a month. So over the last six months, the Chinese yuan has been uh, be growing a fair bit weaker after about a year and a half of strengthening against the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is remaining very strong right now, and that is perhaps our one fortune in all of the current global economic situation right now. That's probably the only reason that we're not in absolute chaos is that because of the fact that so much of this crisis globally is centered around energy, and the U.S. dollar is the primary denomination under which energy transactions are handled, internationally, the US dollar has remained very strong, uh, despite other currencies, European currencies in particular, weakening. I would agree with that to a certain extent. I mean, particularly with the comparison between the dollar and the yuan, I think it highlights a more, a broader underlying issue in that everyone's really having problems right now. In that, you know, like while we here in the US, we're seeing high inflation, we're seeing high energy prices. I mean, generally speaking, the whole world's seeing high energy prices right now, and generally speaking, high inflation as well. But China is also experiencing much more difficulty in their economic sector as well. And so, like, a lot of these things are volatile but not necessarily doom and gloom in and of themselves like energy prices fluctuating is not necessarily a bad thing assuming they don't stay there now that's a difficult thing to predict but you know given the producers of energy largely being russia in reference to this conversation mm -hmm. and china as a consumer to some degree but like those kinds of things will change over time. And like we talked about with the Inflation Reduction Act, climate change is going to be a huge uh, contributor to that in times to come. If we're able to actually get renewable sources of energy, we won't be as reliable on Russia. Although I don't think China is going to take, you know, our lead on that <laughs> and move in the same direction as us. Sure, they're but, not likely to, and uh, I mean, we've really right. set. We've talked about this before, but we've kind of set the course to create this, you know, this regional power block differentiation. Uh, we have definitely pushed Russia closer to China, and perhaps several other countries that were already hostile to us, you know, largely. But we we've missed any opportunity we had at pulling them into the Western fold, and um, on on inflation. I mean, you know, we've got this most recent uh, consumer price index data. This is uh, on the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is broken down by categories. Um, so it's all items. Uh, we've got food, 
here, which is still sitting pretty high at about 10.9%, and energy still representing the largest category of inflation, though this number has dropped since last month, um, but it's still sitting at 32% right now. And um, part of the reason why that energy uh, inflation has dropped is because demand is just declining. We are entering a little bit of a, you know, a, a, we're entering the, in the early stages of that recessionary glut that is a weird, in, in a weird transient space. You know, it's, it's hilarious, but I've heard people refer to this as a, somebody coined this term on Twitter. It's, they're calling it a vibe session. And I, I think that's hilarious. I mean, I laughed at it, but at the same yeah. time, I don't think they deserve any credit for that. <laughs> no, no, probably not. Um, I know, I know I mean, who, who came up with it too. <laughs> I mean, this is a pretty good example, though, of the current environment that we're in. You know, like the inflation here for all items, for food, you know, like it's high compared to what we're used to. But at the same time, the bulk of what we're experiencing is very concentrated in certain industries. Absolutely. So like. This chart gives a perfect example of energy compared to food and, you know, general items. But, like, what we're seeing is, I mean, energy in particular, but we're also seeing inflation very targeted in other industries, such as the housing market, such as used car industry. And, like, we're getting used car prices are coming down a little bit right now. Yeah. But housing prices are still very volatile i mean you know up until a couple weeks ago we had the hottest housing market we've had in years and so it's not clear how that's going to pan out in the next couple of months near term but it is going to take several months to a year minimum before this starts to really level out to any new sense of normal yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the housing bit because, um, I mean, we have seen, we're seeing new housing purchases drop to like, we're getting pretty close to the, the towards the lowest that we've seen in five years and certainly the lowest we've seen in the past year at the very least. Um, we saw a pretty decent spike in uh, between November, December uh, of 2021 and January of uh, 2022. Um, and that was perhaps likely due to the cause of the Fed, the reality of inflation starting to sink in at that time and the Federal Reserve starting to become firm on the fact that they were going to raise rates. So savvy consumers who were positioned uh, in a certain way at that time said, well, I'm going to buy it now before rates go up. I'm going to lock in a you know 15-year, 30-year fixed. Um, well, well, and likely that's what the data says to you as well, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, year high purchases in December, January, and February. I mean, these are winter months. These aren't the normal months that you go house hunting and, you know, searching properties in your neighborhood for the family home. Like this is very out of the ordinary for these to be the highest months. Yeah, I would say December being the highest month is pretty unusual. Um uh, now I should I will pull up this uh you know this five year chart and this ten year chart and say that overall housing new housing purchases are still you know up pretty substantially but you can see here that it is definitely looking like we're starting to trend downward and this is the fear I think as well when it comes to this the stock market I mean when we look at the S and P five hundred um 
this this current um if, if we look at this daily chart we zoom out here yes there is this recovery that's been going on for the last three weeks now but it, it almost feels like it is the calm before the storm in you know our employment numbers are still very strong we still have certain elements of the economy that don't are, are sort of lagging behind what we would expect to see given certain other conditions and um we we very well still could see this like broad downward trend that could occur here i mean like let's be realistic about this we have conflict still in the world the Russia-Ukraine situation is still ongoing, hasn't really changed at all. We have economic volatility, whether that be by inflation or, you know, the great resignation or, you know, reassignment, whatever you want to call it. Like, there's just a lot of things changing in the world right now. And the idea that this recovery is us coming out of that is in and of itself kind of crazy and illogical because when you consider all the different forces that are moving right now very few of them are likely to change within the next year let alone the next couple of years so i mean we're talking about you know high inflation while it is slowing is here to stay and energy prices are much higher than we've been accustomed to for many years yeah, and um, I mean, while we're talking about that, you know, consumer confidence is trending downward as well. That is an indicator that I generally like to look to. It, you you start to get a feel of when ordinary people who are not in touch, deeply in touch with the news and with financial cycles, or perhaps even with you know the conditions in the stock market, because many Americans are not invested in the stock market in any meaningful sense uh, whatsoever. If you're not a member of the professional managerial class or working in a white collar job or in you know above the age of 50 um, and with a secure you know 401k that you're concerned about in terms of how close your proximity to retirement is, a lot a lot of Americans are not. Um, overly concerned with these stock market cycles and these things, but consumer confidence gives us a little bit of a measure on in terms of how they're feeling about the economy. And employment numbers is the one thing that, like I said, uh, is still surprising me uh, from time to time, I guess. Yeah, employment numbers are interesting, particularly in our current modern economy. I mean... You know, previously, employment numbers were a good indication of, you know, whether households were getting, you know, steady income, able to pay the bills, put food on the table, that kind of a situation. But over the past, you know, 50 to 100 years, and I would say it's only gotten worse as, you know, you know, more recent history is, but like that ability to have a job has turned into more commonly having two jobs. So, you know, the modern low unemployment rate doesn't necessarily show that all that many people are doing well, but could rather show that a smaller percentage of people have two jobs in order to make do with what they have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people labor labor productivity has gone up pretty persistently over the last 50 years and um you know barring 
if you look at a, a extended chart of the U6 unemployment rate, which this is not the numbers that the government primarily likes to uh, look at. This is perhaps, uh, in my opinion, is a, a fairly accurate measure of, of where unemployment is sitting at. Um, obviously, besides the forcible unemployment caused by pandemic shutdowns, we have seen ourselves trend back downward to the levels that we were at right before close to the levels we were at right before the pandemic began and that is why there is not anything you know overly concerning there yet but like glenn just mentioned people are definitely strained in terms of the hours that they're putting in in terms of the number of jobs that they're maintaining in most circumstances and um uh, well and i the, mean like just to kind of summarize this point like we're seeing the same level unemployment that we saw before the pandemic but at the same time we're seeing unheard of levels of inflation which means you can't support those same bills off the same employment that you had pre-pandemic like things are worth more now particularly energy but we were just looking at food and you know all items in general like that's not price that you can sustain a you know 12 percent increase on food like if you're at the same job that you were at before the pandemic that's 10 percent of your salary is gone like, yeah I, I mean what do you do with that you know how do you how do you manage that in a family let alone you know you know two newlyweds or you know an individual just starting out their working career Absolutely. Regardless of where you fall on the socioeconomic uh, strata, inflation is a tax against every single one of us. Uh, you know, poor, rich, inflation is a tax against all of us. Obviously, like every tax, virtually the poor are more impacted than this by the than the rich. But um, in particular, where it comes, you know, where when core categories are affected, like food and energy, um, you know, when you become wealthy or if you become wealthy, you do not consume, you may earn 10 times more than somebody, you know, in the, in the bottom quintile of income earners in this country, but you are not consuming 10 times the energy. Yeah. I mean, like these are the things that everyone needs. And so, I mean, no matter your income, it costs what it costs. And the higher these percentages rise, the harder it is to deal with it. And so it's very interesting and new from an economic standpoint that we have, you know, essentially these like historic low levels of low, low levels of unemployment while having these high levels of inflation. Like this is a very new period that we're going into while at the same time, we don't really know how our economic system or private companies rather are going to respond to this. Yeah. And um, in the meanwhile, as we talked about at the beginning here, the only action we're seeing from the federal government is to spend more. You know, aside from the massive spending that we talked about in that Inflation uh, Reduction Act, which has not yet been signed, it's been passed by both the House and the Senate, but it's not at the time of this recording, it's not yet been signed. It probably will be signed, I'm sure, within the coming days here. There's a strong support for it, obviously, by the president's office. But besides that, you know, we're also spending money on, um, you know, we had a massive semiconductor bill 
um, that was passing into law. The semiconductor industry had already pledged to spend tens of billions of dollars domestically in uh, manufacturing capacity. What was, yeah. you know, I, I, this is obviously something that I think is very important, but what was the need for this funding to come from the government, which is the U.S. taxpayer? Well, yeah, and I mean, I think this is a nice way to uh, highlight some of the broader issues we're kind of seeing with the disconnect right now in that the semiconductor bill, while it is promoting a good ideal in bringing semiconductor production to the United States, which we've outsourced way too much in the past. Like the idea that you need to incentivize this further off of the taxpayer's dime is a dangerous idea that is going to cost us dearly in inflation. And I mean, I work in the computing industry. There was a new quantum computing bill about spending money in development of cybersecurity and quantum computing. There's a lot of different components to that bill, which I know we talked about, we would like to get in further, but like there's this constant spending of money to solve these different problems, some of which are being solved on their own, like the semiconductor bill with the pandemic that we all just went through. Like it's no, <laughs> no one is confused about the issue of semiconductor production right now. Everyone wants to produce more semiconductors. The question is how and how to do it effectively. Yeah. And we've talked about before, the issue is no matter how much money you throw at that problem, you are still going to take five to 10 years before you have really like ramped up your production to a meaningful extent when you talk about establishing a new foundry. And, um, you know, this is something we haven't really talked about directly here, but TMC, TSMC is uh, a lot of people may not be familiar with them. I was not even aware of their existence until a couple of years ago myself, uh, because when you talk about U.S. semiconductors, you think of Texas Instruments, you think of NVIDIA, you think of Intel, you think of AMD, you think of all these companies that have we know are U.S.-based semiconductor firms. What we don't recognize is that they are, up until now, have not been doing the bulk of their own manufacturing. They've been doing the design on these semiconductors, but then they've been contract manufacturing this largely to this one firm in Taiwan, which is TSMC. And this is leading to the geopolitical strain around Taiwan right now and why Nancy Pelosi's trip there last week, it was such a problem and why the Chinese are taking it as such an act of hostility against them. Absolutely. And I mean, I love that you brought it up in this light because I would like to get to China and Nancy Pelosi, but I would like to start with this like idea that Apple and Microsoft and IBM and Texas Instruments and all these like technolo technology developers, you know, the smartwatches, the smartphones, name any technology that uses a computer chip. And odds are it has a semiconductor developed by TSMC. And people wonder why we're having such an issue in getting modern vehicles, in particular, the next gen, you know, the latest, the 2021s, 2022s, the trucks, the Hondas, the Toyotas, the, you name it. They all rely on these next generation computer chips that are all developed almost 
all developed in Taiwan. And when the pandemic happened, a lot of companies, namely Intel here in the U.S., realized that this was a problem and started securing contracts to build up their semiconductors in Ohio, like we've talked about on the show before. But when you realize that, historically speaking, these have all come from one place, regionally speaking, that's a huge geopolitical point of interest that everyone has to pay attention to and respect in some capacity. Now we get to recent times with Nancy Pelosi, one of the highest-ranking U.S. officials to ever visit Taiwan, just casually does it, and the media is baffled by China's response, which was obviously quite forthright. <laughs> Whether yeah. right or wrong, I should say. Absolutely. I mean, a U.S. Speaker of the House has visited Taiwan before. I think Newt Gingrich was the last to do it, and that, was, uh, that must have been in the late yeah. 90s. Um, but aside from that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Since 1997, when uh, Newt Gingrich went there, uh, Beijing obviously did not like this. They're under a lot of pressure domestically as well. Xi Jinping himself is under a lot of personal pressure, having cemented his power as the central party leader effectively permanently. You know, he's facing a ton of pressure. The Chinese economy, like we've talked about already earlier this episode, is under a ton of strain. They cannot lose face in a way like this. And that's why we have seen a little bit of military brinkmanship with the Chinese launching missiles into the ocean nearby Taiwan. But you know, I have mixed feelings on whether when when China will take action against Taiwan, I should say, not whether. Um, many people I know and many intelligent people disagree with me on the fact that China will uh, take over Taiwan uh, because a lot of people believe, well, what's the incentive for them to? They currently... Uh, under most countries' diplomatic guidelines, Taiwan is effectively China. You know, the one China policy is respected by virtually all of Europe and by the United States, despite the fact that we arm the Taiwanese and on the back end, you know, we're playing this game. But um, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, Nancy Pelosi unilaterally taking a step uh, on a foreign policy step, which is not her role as Speaker of the House, frankly, even though I, I, I may partially agree with uh, you know, the idea of taking a more strong stance against China, it, it, that is not her role. And that can only happen under a weak presidential administration like we currently have. And um, also of significance, I didn't even consider this until just a moment ago. She, her, her district is San Francisco. She is, her district is Silicon Valley. That is extremely shocking that despite, you know, having her district be based in Silicon Valley, that she would take action that would actually harm the companies that are within her district uh, actively. And we know that Apple and Tesla and some of these giants have made backroom deals with the Chinese, promising them, hey, you know, we're not involved with any of this stuff that our government is doing, you know, supporting Taiwan. We fully support China. It's Apple, and, Apple and Tesla have both done that because they want to protect their domestic production interests in, in China. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's kind of a mixed point of interest, though. Because on one hand, it is kind of a nuanced area, but at the same time, Nancy Pelosi in and of herself is pretty well cemented in her role. Well, she's I planning mean, on retiring. 
Well, that's what I mean. Like, she's been a career politician for years. And like, well, right. Decades at this point. And like, she's looking at retirement. So there's not really uh, too much of a concern about reelection at this point. You know what I mean? While at the same time, like, there are some very big issues, (laughs) obviously, with what she's been doing. And not only with her trip to Taiwan, but like. We most most countries operate with the one China policy while at the same time doing these behind the scenes deals with Taiwan. So it's a very intricate situation and has been for quite some time. But once you sprinkle in these economic issues in China, particularly, but supply chain issues at large, Taiwan becomes a lot more valuable when literally every other nation on the planet needs these computer chips, among other things that only they currently produce. Absolutely. It's core to our economy, but it's core to every economy from a consumer standpoint. You know, the United States develops a lot of this tech that and owns the companies that build these products, right? Even if that production is outsourced. But the entire world you know, consumes these products. Every smartphones are important to the entire globe. You know, a lot of this. Yeah. That's a good point to what we were talking about before we started recording in that, um, I brought up the way IP has been used, especially recently, as opposed to historically where like intellectual property more recently is typically used to give to outsourced companies in a limited capacity so that they can produce some your own intellectual property for cheaper than you could produce it yourself now more historical evidence to this would be that you maintain your own ip and that you hire in labor and bring people in-house in order to handle this production for you whereas now more modern globalist thinking is to send this overseas where it's much cheaper and it's much easier for you to send your information than it is for you to send 30 trainers to go teach your next, you know, influx of employees. Oh yeah, and I mean I think we've discussed it at least once before on the show just the technology that has really thrived in the pandemic era as a result of the need to work remote has really enabled outsourcing uh, on a greater scale in terms of service and uh, especially in sectors of the economy that are service oriented. Uh, You know, the um, self-storage industry, for example, uh, self-storage and a number of other um, industries are using almost exclusively Filipino uh, support and call center employees now. Obviously, outsourcing of call centers has been a long, you know, a widespread practice in the United States for a long time. But these are not just, you know, simple support staff these are the people handling like the full administration effectively uh, you have one person in the united states that will own the property and will have invested in building the self storage units and the entire rest of the operation will be based in a country like the philippines that has high english literacy via tools like zoom and via docusign and via all of these uh, you know tools that have really thrived Right, but at the same time, they get to take advantage of the low cost of labor and you know the you know 
need for uh, employment among the populace and all the different advantages they can make use of in those environments, given the global situation they're in. Absolutely. I mean, those uh, those employees are not paying taxes in the United States. They, you know, they're being paid through shell corporations that are established in their countries, and they're being paid, you know, anywhere from between three to five dollars an hour. Which, for the quality of their labor, they would be pay- if they were in the based in the United States, they would be probably getting paid over twenty dollars an hour at, at current market rates in a in a medium sized, uh, small to medium sized city. And if they were based, you know, on, on a coastal city, they'd be ma- earning more than that even. So it's a it's a huge benefit to these companies like the self storage industry that they've been able to do this. But uh, the taxes is also a huge concern. The amount that they're saving and that their employees, uh, their foreign based employees, are saving on taxes is a, another thing. And that I, the reason I mentioned that is because I want to go back to this point about this massive package for the IRS that is in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, and I mean, this is, I mean, a key point of the Inflation Reduction Act, but I would say a broader thing to pay attention to just across the board is what are your tax dollars being spent on and what are the people who collect your tax dollars doing with them? And, you know, some of that is what's the government spending your money on, right? And the other part of that is the IRS, the people specifically who investigate and collect your taxes. What are they doing with your money? And well, as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, they're hiring an incredible amount of investigators to help catch you in your crimes that the IRS knows you're doing. (laughs) Basically, that's basically their attitude. I I mean, they, they... Doubling the number of enforcement personnel at the IRS is like truly absurd, and I actually doubling them. I yeah, know it's, it it's like, actually it's actually doubling them. Um, I, I think there's something actually. It might be slightly over doubling them. I think there's somewhere around eighty, eighty-two, eighty-three thousand enforcement agents, and they're planning on adding eighty-seven thousand new employees to the IRS. Uh, so, like, this is the largest expansion of the IRS, like we mentioned earlier. And what's even more crazy is that. So an amendment was proposed. Most people aren't aware of the ha- happenings within the House and the Senate, but an, an amendment was proposed that would limit these new IRS agents from be, to only being able to investigate households that whose uh, income is uh, on average over four hundred thousand dollars per year. So, you know, if this is a obviously a bill that was passed by Democrats. Most Democrats tend to agree with the idea of rich paying more taxes in particular. Well, guess what? There was an opportunity to ensure that these new IRS agents would only be able to audit wealthy people. And that amendment was was not passed um, by yeah. the people that passed this bill. So they will be targeting the middle class because it's far more easy for them to audit the middle class than it is for them to audit a business owner that is, uh, you know, upper middle class or upper class or somebody who is truly significantly wealthy because we, we can hide behind an army of lawyers. You know, I, I exactly. think about yeah. it like I have the resources to hire a lawyer to fight you until Absolutely. I feel like dealing with you. And then, like, at the same time. Obviously, I don't know what this obsession with the $400,000 mark is. Apparently, there's a metric that's like 
cutoff there. But like none of these laws have been enforced. The we're going to tax people who make over $400,000 more in income tax. That bill failed too. Like this one failed again. They're not investigating or even interested in those people. That's the guys to get you to vote them into office to get these bills on the table. And once these bills are on the table, they can apply it to whoever they want to. Yeah. And I feel like this is just the most recent example of that. And it's it's honestly sad to watch. Yeah, I mean, I uh, on that point in terms of collecting more tax revenue, I think we may have discussed this off camera before, but I personally think that what you would do you know, income earners are already high income earners are already taxed pretty uh, significantly. Like a two household, like a household with two doctors, for example, that's earning, say, these days, um, you know, six hundred, six to eight hundred thousand dollars per annual per annum. That's a lot of money, but they're being taxed on effectively fifty percent of that or close to it. And, well, um, and my my information may be a couple years out of date here, so feel free to double check this. And please don't quote me if I'm wrong, but it's something like the top 25% or the top 10% of this country pay for over 25% of it. Like, um, yeah, that, no, that is, that was, that was accurate a few years ago. At least I would uh, say it's probably still accurate today. Actually, I think it might be a little bit higher than that now. I'm not positive, but like, that's an insane number. And so, like, this idea that the rich aren't paying their fair share, well, like, hang on, we need to figure out what fair share is, because they're paying an awful lot. Now, I'm not saying it's even, but they are paying an awful lot, and the policies that claim to be in your favor aren't. So, there's a very real problem between what people want and what's getting passed. Yeah, and I mean not to not to deviate too far from what we're currently talking about. Yes, uh, you know the top the top ten percent, the top quintile, the top twenty five percent, whatever, however you want to divide that, do pay a substantial portion of the taxes in this country, even in proportion to in proportion to how much wealth they're garnering from this country's economy. But where you really get into trouble when you're discussing that is just the deviation between the top 10% of income earners or even the top 5% of households versus the top you know 0.5% or the top 0.1% of income earners people that are largely uh, you know earn their largely their net worth and their uh, income is coming from capital gains and capital gains right. taxes on ordinary americans i think are at a fine rate personally i would not uh, want to raise capital gains taxes on ordinary people and even on like semi high income earners. But when you're talking about people that are collecting income in excess of 10 million per year, perhaps we have to close some of the loopholes that allow them to say, take loans against their assets at very, very low interest rates and avoid paying taxes on those because those are loans or you know, they they have so many mechanisms that they can use to skirt paying even that 20%, 25% cap gains rate. Broadly speaking, I would say that I agree with you, but there are noticeable exceptions that I would like to point out in which like examples like Jeff Bezos is currently a bad example, but when Amazon was booming, 
he paid the major the most in taxes that anyone had paid at that time. Now I'm I'm almost 100% confident that Elon Musk holds that title for paying the most in taxes out of any given year. And the reason for that is because they don't actually have any money in the sense that the average person thinks of saved money. They have all their money invested into assets and into companies. Like sure, sure. Musk, for example, it's all in SpaceX and Tesla. The guy lives in, you know, like a sustainable housing, like very small square foot actual living space. And like, you know, the money that they have isn't real in large capacities. Now, Jeff Bezos is obviously a different case than Elon Musk here. He's got like mega yachts and he's been wealthy for quite a bit longer. And don't get me wrong. Elon Musk blows his fair share of money, too. Yeah, I mean, but, he, I'm sure I'm sure he lives quite well, you know, oftentimes just by proximity to a lot of the people he's networked with. But he, he's kind of he's a bit of a stoic when it comes to his lifestyle. You know, he lives in like right. a, a tiny home. Right. What I'm getting at here, though, is that there were instances in which they paid an exorbitant amount of taxes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, is that fair? I, 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 don't, I don't know that about I don't, Bezos. Um, I, I don't know if that's the case about Bezos. Uh, I know it did happen. I don't know the numbers or the years. And, you know, Amazon's been a corporate giant for decades now. So, like, he's more than made his money back. Well, Je- the thing, the thing is, Jeff Bezos, Je- Jeff Bezos has oftentimes offset his, uh, when, when he does, when he has sold Amazon stock, he's offsetted his income substantially by making large donations, granted. Um, but those donations were perhaps, you know, a little bit politically motivated as well, though they were to 501c3, uh, you know, organizations. I'm hesitant to swing one way or the other on those kind of instances, because the same can be said of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And, you know, like there are that's the way business is done when you are wildly successful at that level. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not arguing for its morality or anything like that, but. After a certain point, you just have to accept that it makes sense. And if you want to keep doing it, you have to do things that make sense. Yeah, absolutely. I I do think that regarding the entire tax piece, the biggest concern that I have and that I, uh, you know, a sentiment that I'm starting to hear from other people as well is like we've talked about is this concern about how our tax dollars are being spent, especially in those areas where, say, you know, you, where your pro- particular political party, you know, we, we have a two party system here in this country. But even if you align very strong, if you're let's say, you know, you're not a independent or a moderate uh, centrist, you and you align strongly with one party or the other in this country. There are certain areas where, regardless of who you vote for, that spending is going to happen whether you agree with it or not. And a lot of this is military-related, and this is something that we talked about a little bit before we started recording, is just how much money is getting pumped into defense and into, in particular, into the Ukraine conflict, um, but into uh, some stuff that we would agree is perhaps important, like that quantum computing and cybersecurity bill that you mentioned, uh, you know, I, I very strongly feel that is important spending. But then we have things like the, you know, HR 7691, which was passed a few months ago, 
um, the additional Ukraine Supplemental Appropriations Act, which allocated some forty, I think forty-two billion dollars to Ukraine. Uh, and what's at important that time. about this is that we spent money to pay for a war that quote we are not involved in. That is per the Biden administration. We are not involved in the Ukraine conflict, yet we are still spending money on it. Yeah, I mean, the War Powers Act, like Congress has not declared war since World War II, and it is frankly absurd. I'm I'm almost at the point where I say we ought to have a referendum vote in order to engage in military conflict on, on foreign soil when it is not directly on behalf of U.S. defense, which... You know, I, I think it's pretty clear that you know our involvement in Ukraine is for Ukraine's defense and for Europe's defense largely. It is not directly related to U.S. immediate defense. Therefore, I think you know those sorts of things. We do have the luxury of time, obviously, because we didn't immediately initiate this stuff. Russia invaded in February, right? And um, we, we it took several months before this funding bill was uh, was passed. Why could that not have been run by the American people? This, these are sort of the sort of situations where I wish we were a more direct democracy in certain regards. Well, I mean, I feel like this is the perfect example of what I personally think is a little bit wrong with our current system. And like it, the way politics lags behind the world, I think is a good thing, broadly speaking. But at the same time, this this is a train wreck. And I mean, this is the kind of situation at which you will not leave this problem without consistent guidance for a prolonged period of time. And so I don't know what that looks like. Is that prolonged support to Ukraine? Is that we should have armed up and went in right away? I don't know what the right answer is, and no one will ever know what the right answer is, but throwing money at the problem will not solve it. That's what I know. No, and I mean, you're already hearing uh, news coming out of Ukraine with reports coming out of Ukraine, I should say, the Ukrainian government saying, estimating the cost of rebuilding the country, even if we were to assume they were to become, be victors in this conflict and Russia were to pull pull out tomorrow, uh, the cost of rebuilding Ukraine is several trillion dollars, and it is still a deeply corrupt country. And in these types of corrupt uh, countries, when you have vast amounts of unchecked money going into those countries, a lot of that disappears. Uh, and same with arms as well. A lot of arms that are sent to these types of countries end up in uh, other places and unexpectedly. And, you know, we are not conducting virtually any oversight on this and it's that's why I, I draw a lot of parallels to this situation into Afghanistan. Um, you know, this uh Newsweek article I, that I've got pulled up here. Um I just, feel like yeah. I feel like Afghanistan is a good example of what could potentially go wrong in Ukraine, even assuming they do win. And that is, you know, the United States went in, invested a bunch of money and military resources, and then oh, you know, their I mean, there as in Afghanistan in this situation, but their executives and officials that the United States supported essentially ran off with the money and created a whole host of corruption and new problems that they didn't have to begin with. 
Oh yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't even remember his name anymore, but that guy who we had installed as the president of uh, Afghanistan, he, you know, he fled the country with, uh, I, I think hundreds of millions of dollars in cash, um, was what was estimated. But so this is interesting. I'm going to read from this piece here because, um, so this is, uh, posted on MSN news, but it's a Newsweek article. And, um, the special inspector general for Afghanistan really did a good job on, in their report. I read parts of that report when it came out, um, but it found that, um, you know, and mind you, Afghanistan was a very prolonged conflict. We were involved in Afghanistan for decades. And, uh, you know, it says here the U.S. had devoted at least $134 billion trying to shore up the Afghan government. And a 2020 report by the congressionally mandated Office of Special, uh, special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction found that around $19 billion of the approximately $63 billion in assistance reviewed was lost to waste, corruption, and abuse. That's, you know, that's 30, that's 30% roughly of the amount that was, uh, you know, allocated for assistance there. Afghanistan is obviously a far less stable and even more corrupt country than Ukraine, I would argue. But uh, the interesting thing about the Ukraine funds is, you know, at this point, we've now sent, I believe, like somewhere in the range of $54, 58000000000 billion to Ukraine total. And, um, like that's the, just the U.S. That's I mean, just the United States, which we the number US. the amount of money that we have sent to Ukraine dwarfs all of Europe combined, which is a little bit absurd when you consider the fact that this is more of Europe's problem than it is our problem. I'm not saying that we should be wholly uninvolved by any means, and I do you know I do we, just to reiterate, um, you know we we stated from the beginning, obviously this is an unjust invasion. Uh, the position of the Ukrainian people and the right to defend their sovereignty is absolute, I believe. Um, what level of involvement we personally have as a country, and that is what I'm drawing into question here. And just the reality of the fact that, you know, Rand Paul, whether you like him or not, uh, most people probably don't like him. I, I, I often don't like him, and I sometimes like him, and that's kind of a thing that I respect about him as a politician, uh, as far as they go. But, um, he was the only one that proposed that we mandate a uh, office of special in investor, uh, uh, excuse me, inspector general for the oh, to oversee the Ukraine funds as well, and bipartisan support against that in this circumstance because they know that it would have exposed a lot of the corruption within the Zelensky government and would have, you know, painted the current narrative of Ukraine being, you know, this completely perfect, innocent and noble country, they would have, they would have damaged that image. So they prevented that from happening. Yeah. And I mean, like this kind of Russia, Ukraine narrative is obviously very in flux. And I feel like we've been very clear about that from the start. And I feel like the media has at least tried to do that to whatever degree they're capable of to instill that this is very much an influx situation and that news is not <laughs> concrete as soon as we get it. But at the same time, it is what it is. And Russia invaded Ukraine. You know, Ukraine did nothing to provoke Russia in this regard. So it's mm -hmm. really difficult to you know, sway or even deviate from your side in any real capacity. It's just concerning because we have, are, we've seen similar circumstances play out 
you know, over the, in the last two decades of this country's history, you would have thought that we would have learned our lesson on intervention in foreign wars uh, in Syria, in Afghanistan, in all of these conflicts, you know, time and time again, we've seen, and perhaps part of it is, I think the West feels a lot stronger alignment to Ukraine, despite the fact that Ukraine was a former Soviet country, you know, at the end of the day, they are a part of Europe versus a part of the Middle East. And I think that, you know, that is a factor that's playing into this. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I'm apprehensive about giving too much credence to that. That's definitely a big part of the current situation, particularly with Ukraine and Russia. But in many ways, we don't really have a choice. Because while it is more of Europe's problem, Ukraine not being as close of an ally, I'll say, as they have been in the past, is more detrimental to the United States than it is to Europe in many ways. Now, it's difficult to compare those. Uh, how so? I'm going to push back on that. So economic versus militaristic. And what I mean by that is in terms of militaristic capabilities, there are typically three areas in which any nation or entity, I would say, is particularly interested in. Mm -hmm. And now, first and foremost is obviously the size of your forces. Can you send your forces overseas, still have enough to defend your home bases, et cetera, sure. et cetera, right? This has always fairly, been a problem in war, yeah. Fairly standard military strategy, right? But then at the same time, you have to also evaluate what your opponents have and your ability to move what you have to where you need it to be. In order to be the aggressor in a conflict, you have to be able to move your resources to where you need them. This was true in World War II and is largely why World War II ended the same the way it did. The United States had the capacity to move around the Pacific Ocean. Europe, in terms of the United Kingdom, France, Spain, and many other nations, had the ability to freely move their units around Europe. And I mean, freely within the... Well, I was going to say not easily, but it, it, they in, succeeded. In terms, yeah. on, in terms of the conflict and sure. the front line, they did what they had to do. Mm -hmm. But that's what decides the outcome of these conflicts. And so it's very difficult to have any confidence in the side that doesn't control those fronts, I would say. Yeah, and now retrospectively, it's perhaps easy to say, but I, I think it probably would have been wise for Ukraine to uh, honestly just glass a bunch of their infrastructure, especially on the eastern part of the country that borders Russia, uh, you know, in the Donetsk uh, region. Had they done that, you know, like I said, it's easy to say this now in retrospect, uh, much of that infrastructure was already destroyed and much of their infrastructure has now been destroyed, despite the fact that in the first two, three months of this invasion, Russia was not targeting infrastructure until they had begun to themselves incur significant losses. And um, But now now that situation has changed. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like it... I feel like our earlier episodes kind of 
give credence to this in that it never really felt like Russia expected the conflict to go as it has gone. And like early on, like you just mentioned, they didn't actually affect, um, you know, like infrastructure or supply lines. What they mm-hmm. actually affected was, you know, the mora- the morale and the symbolic buildings or, you know, they were targeting Zelensky very heavily early on. I can't remember the most recent attempt on Zelensky as an assassination. You know, like, yeah, those kinds of things just aren't happening anymore because it's a different kind of conflict now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it still hasn't devolved to obviously to the worst places it could go. And um, there, I think there is still some fear of uh, Russia potentially, you know, using a tactical nuclear weapon against a military asset in particular, not against like a civilian region. Um, It's still an unlikely outcome, but it's not off the table. And um, that's why. Yeah. I mean, I would say the more time that passes, the less likely that is. I mean, at this point, it is more difficult for Ukraine to get continued support than it is for Russia to maintain what they have been doing. And that is not in the world's best interest. Especially because of all of the factors that we've been talking about earlier in this episode with currency strength of the ruble, with the energy situation in Europe, with us going into winter and Europe going into winter and needing to increase their energy demand. Even though we have seen these prices drop pretty substantially over the last month, I think we, you know, there's definitely potential to see that price increase again going into the winter as demand increases again. Yeah, particularly over this last month, month and a half, I would say we've seen some pretty, pretty decent recovery and recuperation from what we've experienced previously. But it is still a very precarious situation with everything that's going on. Yeah, I there also may be some politicking going on at at play. I haven't really looked into what sort of actions the administration may have been taking in particular. But, you know, just given the fact that there are elections coming up in, you know, three months now. Um, we have uh, our old logo just uh, popped up on me. <laughs> That's, That's embarrassing. I made, I, I, made, I made that in MS Paint, so I'm not going to feel too bad about it, but... <laughs> Um, I just hope that's in our outro, just uh, creeping in out of the darkness and just have our old logo. <laughs> you know, it is cemented permanently on our episode one on oh, like no. Spotify and other platforms. I deleted episode one off YouTube, but I, I left it up on audio only. So that that uh, MS Paint logo that I made is uh, permanently up uh, if, if you want to get a good laugh at that. But yeah. All right. To give us an outro, or is that devolution good enough? <laughs> no, no, I think I think we've thoroughly deviated from uh, the uh, seriousness of the conversation that we were having. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I I hope that our latency is not that bad. I know the camera setups uh, can definitely improve, but uh, I haven't even been looking at our Spotify metrics. To be completely honest with you, I only look at our YouTube metrics. And uh, so there's actually probably more people listening to this show than I think there are because uh, I don't look at the uh, Spotify and Apple podcasts and Google podcast metrics. But um, I do know for a fact that uh, a number of people did listen to the show, uh, especially to the last two episodes um, with uh, Dr. Rivera. And um, we 
plan to do more stuff in the vein of conversations around spe- very specific sectors like healthcare. Um, plan to have uh, Will back on to talk about um, some cybersecurity and uh, t- we want to talk more about that quantum computing bill and uh, cybersecurity piece. And Glenn has a lot to say um, as he is now currently researching and building quantum computers, uh, doing really cool stuff out there. So um, yeah, I this was a shorter episode, I think, but um, glad we were able to catch up on some of this stuff uh, about Ukraine, about international policy, about just, you know, a lot, a lot has been happening in some of these areas uh, since we last uh, discussed them. And I'm glad that we've had an opportunity to uh, touch base on some of this stuff and uh, on some of the economic piece as well. Yeah, I just want to say thanks for having me back on. It's always good to be a co-host of Esoteric Artifacts and uh, it's good. Uh, Good times ahead. A little bit scary, but good times. Uh, we'll hopefully, yeah, <laughs> we'll make it through and yeah. uh, learn about it together. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, there's no no point uh, stressing uh, too deeply about uh, that which is outside of your control. I I, I try to, I, I like to stay plugged into what's happening, but um, at the end of the day, you know, we we all have our own lives. We have our own loved ones. Um, we have those things are more important to focus on. I think uh, you know, focusing on our relationships on our family, on our careers and um, on, on the practical stuff that really directly interfaces with our lives. And if we have time, uh, extra time, I think it's nice to learn about what is going on in the rest of the world. Um, I, we definitely have a lot of interesting uh, stuff coming up for you on this channel. We've got a philosophy episode lined up. Um, we're, we're, we're definitely gonna be mixing it up here and uh, I'm excited about uh, seeing where we go. I also just want to thank all the people that have been supporting since I started uh, promoting this a little bit on my Instagram. Um, you know, we haven't done any serious promotion of this, but like for the last three episodes, I've just seen a pretty awesome outpouring of support from people. And um, that's been uh, great to experience. And uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of potential guests uh, started reaching out to me and telling me that they were interested in coming on the show. So uh, that's also uh, good news. So please do drop a like um, and subscribe to our channel on whatever platform you're listening to. If you have not already done that, that helps us out a lot. Um, helps me know whether we're doing a good job or not, or whether, uh, and uh, would also appreciate any feedback from any of you. So thank you very much for listening. This has been episode number nine of Esoteric Artifacts. I'm Sabash. This is my co-host, Glenn, back finally after like two months. Um, have a good night.